I always tell people that I took this path, like, and I'm pointing up, right? Like the path of most resistance is the path I took to sobriety, right? When it comes to my drug addiction. So it just, yeah, I really just failed and said I wouldn't fail again and fail and say I wouldn't fail again until I stopped, stopped making that shitty decision to, to do cocaine. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, our collective journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Welcome to another Our Collective Journey from Darkness to Life podcast. Uh, Damien, great to see you as always. Hey, thanks, Bart. And our new integral part of Our Collective Journey, uh, Amber, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm a little confused because this isn't the first time we've met. You brought this up earlier that we met 13... 14 years ago? How did you remember that? That's amazing. No, it would have been like eight. Okay. Eight or nine. See, again, you told me the story 10 minutes ago and I already... <laughs> you already forgot. Yeah, you. Uh, I got my car stuck. Our kids went to the same daycare up on the hill there, the Montessori, and you got back out of your car and you're, you seen I was just, like evidently struggling and helped push my car out. I did? Yes. Okay, good. I you're was not, like, that's awesome. You're not stuck anymore? Nope. Still <laughs> how, how got old? a better vehicle. <laughs> How how old are your kids, child? Uh, my youngest just turned 13 and my oldest will be 16 in December. Really? How integral were they to you in terms of keeping, you know, a, a positive lifestyle, a positive mindset? It's huge for me. Um, I grew up with a mother who was an addict, um, so I've never wanted to set that same expectation or lifestyle for my kids, were knowing you, how hard it was. Were Were you ever an addict? Yes, I was a drug addict is, back when I was between the ages of 18 and 20. Is is that why you're here today? Are, are yeah. we here to share your story? Yeah. Let's get into that. Cool. And you asked me how I am. And so how are you? Good is an okay answer, but I'd prefer something a little more in depth. I mean, if you're anxious, if you're happy, if you're hungry. Oh, like if you're in terms of mental health, I'm I'm fabulous. Like you, today, on, I have a really good life. I've got nothing to complain about. On a scale of uh, three to fourteen, where are you sitting at right now? I am a fourteen for happiness. Really? Good yeah. For you. yeah. <laughs> wow. Are you a fourteen every day? I would say I range in the top. Yeah. Yeah. Does that take a lot of effort? No. Takes a lot of effort in the in the sense that I go to the gym. I think that helps my kids keep me happy. I have a really good life today, and I'm I'm very fortunate for. For the work that I put in back in the day to create the life I have today. And I have a good circle of people that, you know, keep me uplifted. So you weren't always happy. Obviously. I was definitely not always happy. No, I was super depressed. A very depressed teenager. Uh, yeah. Let's let's start there. How, how young were you when you were depressed? Ooh, probably 12 would be my first recognition of depression. Did you know sure. it? You, did, you knew you were depressed? I, I don't. I'm not sure if I really comprehended that I was depressed. I knew I was living in a house full of chaos, and I don't think I knew how to really comprehend what was going on. So it was a very dark place. No one really helped you, gave you any ed- education on what was going on. So it was very, you felt very alone and scared, really. I think if I were to reflect it, it would be 
an image of being very scared. Like, but I probably didn't know I was depressed. It was probably like a natural. Did you think thing. that was normal? Did you did you think that that's how the rest of your outside world lived? Did you think that that's what your friends went home to, and that was that was just life? No, I knew I knew that my household was not normal, but no one ever really had the conversation that my, what was going on in our house wasn't normal, and I. On when I looked at my other friends, I always thought, "Wow, these people have a really, a really healthy life," and I'm here sheltering and lying to my friends about really what goes on in my own home. So, what did you do to cope with it then? I bet that's where part of the, <laughs> where the addiction story. Yeah, I started. Uh, I the first time I think I smoked pot when I was twelve. I did mushrooms at twelve. I drank at twelve. Uh, I probably. I drank a lot, really. It was it was actually sadly socially normal to go out partying at at in grade seven at the age of twelve in our little village too. So like having that you know normalcy of of being able to go party and then having a, a mother who was an addict at home really it just opened doors for me to find find other drugs and resources. Yeah. Did you care what others thought? I think that I always just put on an image that they didn't know. I don't know. Do I don't. Think, I, do you think they believed you? No, my friends always called me the more extreme one. I'm not sure if they could fully comprehend. Sure. Either, but yeah. Did you have good friends, or were you hanging out with people who had like-minded or similar lifestyles that you were living? You know, I had uh, my two best friends that I'm still friends with from back home. Um, they were always my really great my core people and they're still my best friends today they're wonderful people um and then i always just i had double lives i i socialized with them from time to time and then i had a whole i had multiple other peer groups that i i socialized with and typically those people were a lot older than me two lives yeah if there's been a commonality over past discussions that seems to keep popping up and damien i think you know this better than than most you had to live a double life as well yeah there was the the athlete kind gentle caring kid and then there was the out of control kid that you know same as amber i was drinking in grade seven and experimenting with drugs uh around that time right through junior high school and uh but there was no consequences you know that was just my normal everybody in the community I lived in was doing the same thing. So I just thought that's what you did. Um, you know, you, you practiced football all week, you played your game Friday and, and then Friday night you went to the, the bush party and you got loaded and that just, uh, that was normal. So, so to the both of you, how long did you do this? You can only do that so long before it blows up in your face. <laughs> yeah. Mine blew up in my face. I partied, I partied until I left high school and then I just, I found bigger, better drugs after high school. Okay, so 12 to 17, 12 to 18, yeah. those are your high school years, your very formative years. You're, yeah. You're doing all the things you shouldn't be. Yeah, and I still found good drugs in high school, too. Yeah. <laughs> I call them good drugs because I think it's funny when you look back. You're like, I found ecstasy, I found Ritalin, I found the good drugs. You know, cocaine yeah. in my in my early adolescence as well. So you were into it all? Oh, yeah. Anything I, you get your hands on? Pretty much, yeah. So, very addictive personality. Yeah, highly addictive personality for sure. What was the low part for you? 
Uh, like in terms of my addiction and what, what I did, like hitting, hitting when I started smoking crack would have been a, a good low point. Wow. <laughs> or meth. Yeah. So why? Started doing more morphine to come down off crack and meth. Jesus. You? Yeah. So I could sleep. So what, what your mindset back then, why did you think you needed this? Why did you, you know, start from the booze to the pot, to the coke, to the crack? You know, I think, uh, the drugs, the drugs were a good way of, of coping with what was going on at home. My life at home was chaotic. It was crazy. So if I could be away and high, then I didn't really have to think about what was going on at and home. You, and your parents didn't care? You know, that's the fucked up part. It was like, my parents let me go out and drink. And, and my parents really weren't big drinkers. My mom's addiction actually started in and around the time where I was maybe 11. So my mom actually did heroin at the age of 13, got sober, was sober our entire childhood up until I was a teenager. And I actually think my mom was just very depressed and that was her means of coping, unfortunately. And then, yeah, just my dad didn't know what to do. I just went out and partied. He couldn't control what was going on really anywhere. The only time they really tried to pump the brakes on me is if my mom tried to get sober and then they were like, oh shit, fuck, she's out of control too. So if you And by then, yeah. good fucking luck putting the reins on an ADHD child who's full sended it out into the universe. So if you can't find peace at home, where did you find peace? With drug use. After high school, you said it got worse. Yeah. Because it's already bad. I, I mean, in your high school day, oh, yeah. I mean, you're doing things that most, most teenagers shouldn't do. Of, yeah. You know, let alone find access sources to drugs like this. Yeah. So after high school, what happened? Did you graduate high school? Uh, I actually am sh a shy a credit from my graduation. Yeah. My, my uh, teacher gave me a 49 instead of a 50. So Serious? I fucking kid you not. She was horrible. Yeah, yeah that's, that's just... <laughs> Wasn't that's it rude? Bull, yeah, that's bullshit. It was that's rude. Bullshit. Whatever, I was an asshole in the class. That's my accountability. <laughs> so again, <laughs> that goes back to your addiction. Do you think that played a big role? Of, of... No, I think, you know, my ability to cope with my household, with my mom's addiction, my mom's addiction really spiraled. Um, my mom ended up killing herself um, just before I turned 16. That really put me in the pit. My mom, before addiction, was a really wonderful human being. Um, she was a great person, and, and she was my best friend. I actually did think I would cry here because it's been a long time. This is a safe space. Yeah. Um, okay. You take all the time you need. Yeah, no, it's all good. I'll get over it quickly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, losing her was the worst. You know, when you lose, I think the hardest, what put you in the pit the most is being a teenager who doesn't know what's going on. There's no guidance. You assume that, like, you know, a lot of that is your problem, too. Like, your contributor or whatever the case may be, too, right? Um, my mom actually killed herself the weekend I moved out of the house. So... I lived with that impact of a feeling like it was always my fault. 
And then my dad was, my dad was an asshole after that. And I think, you know, he might have partially blamed, blamed me for a little bit, which, you know, that destroyed our relationship too. And I ended up just really going off the fucking rails after that. But yeah, it was crazy. It was really crazy. How do you even begin to heal? Where, where do you start? Well, it took me a long time. You know, I just, I used harder for a long time. And then, you know, I, I did eventually get my own self out of the pit, which was crazy. And I spent a lot of time in therapy over the years working, working through the trauma of that. Because you don't really, you don't understand the impact at the time that it has on you. But you definitely understand it when you, when you're not swallowing your sorrows and drugs. Hindsight is 2020. And and, and as they say, you you can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. I didn't think I'd cry. I've talked about this quite a bit, but. Lots of tears. Lots of tears have been shed here. I'm getting a little worked up. Um, hearing your story, the inspiration that you're giving to others right now is nothing short of miraculous. Likewise, the courage yeah. that you're possessing to talk about this, you know, yeah. is, is doing so much good Yeah, for those. So, so thank you for wanting to share this. Yeah. Are, are you, do you have siblings? I do. I come from a family of five. And are you like the oldest? Where do you fit in? I am the middle child. Middle child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I just, you know, I. I can kind of relate in what you're talking about where as a teenager, you know, you you think you got it all figured out. But for me, I was like the sounding board from the chaos that went on in my family. And, and I took a lot of the responsibility of, you know, of being a parent, you know, to my, to my brothers. Um, when my dad was fighting his battle of addiction and alcoholism and, you know, the violence that happened in our house and then, you know, the, the chaos of, you know, being an addict myself, but not even realizing that I was and still being 16 years old and trying to figure it out. And I can, I don't know, but I know what that feels like to have that responsibility on you. Like I failed my family and I've done this, but when I look back on it, for me, it was like, it's kind of unfair that I was in that position to begin with. Right. Um, we were failed. Yeah. They failed us to a point, yeah. right? Is, is that how you thought of it, though? I, I, I mean, you I, were forced into a position that you didn't want to be in, that neither one of you should have been in. I, yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know if I ever thought of it in that manner. It, again, it was just my normal, you yeah. know. Like, hmm. um, yeah. I was the one that tried to make peace. I was the one that you know um, wanted to protect my brothers. I wanted to protect my mom. I wanted my dad's admiration. Um, and my only release, I was looking for acceptance and where I found acceptance was with the drinking and the partying. Right. You know, so that duality is I had this social circle where I was a star athlete and all these people, a leader in, in all sports that I played. But then on this side, I was, I wanted that same acceptance from other people. I wanted love, you know, um, I wanted, did you know that's what you wanted back then? No, no, not at all. Like I just, I wanted, I wanted to, I didn't know what I wanted, but all I knew is that, you know, when I was acting this way and partying this way and I was with these people that were also doing the same thing is that I felt I was comfortable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and looking back on it, I think that's all I was ever looking for was I was looking for some acceptance. And ultimately I think I was looking to, for me to accept me, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's all it was. Um, I, I don't know if, if I ever was angry at my parents. Were, well, I'm sure I was. Were you angry at the situation that were, that you were put in? And this is to both of you. I, I mean, forced to look after your siblings or to look out for them. No, not really. Oddly enough, in the situation, like for me personally, I only looked at it and hoped one day that my mother would get better. Like I never really thought about, you know, not being there. I had a really wonderful family. I have lots of brothers and sisters I love so much. Like taking that, there's always some good aspect in there that you weren't like, oh, I wish I wasn't born into this household. You just always wanted your household to be different and normal and whatever kind of capacity that normal could be at. Because like yeah. you, I was a very much a protector of my little brother and sister. Um, and when my mom died, I was forced to raise them. They were seven and eight at the time. So, yeah, it's crazy. How did you cope? How did, how did you deal with that? What didn't? Drugs. Yeah. Drugs, booze, everything you could get your... Yeah, primarily uh, drugs were my jam. Yeah, they were the best means of coping, for Beca sure. Because it numbed everything, because you didn't have to come to terms with it? Yeah, and I was always an extremist. <laughs> I think, like, yeah, the bigger, the better. I feel like they, I found more shitty people that got me. That's the thing, too, is you always find people in similar circumstance, and at the time, they're in the pit with you. They just and that adds to it, it right? And you know that that ripple effect, whether it's negative or positive. In this in this case, negative. You find yourself attracted, drawn to the people that. Well, you attract it because you're putting the vibe out, right? We talked about that earlier. And you can feel it. You can feel that energy. You can yeah. feel that aura. Yeah. You know, um, you say it was balls to the wall when when you said it was party time. You probably wanted to be the last one standing. You wanted to be. Oh yeah! Anybody who knows me, like. If like from using cocaine, I don't really have an off switch. I can just go and go and go. Yeah. And Damien, you were the same. You, you, you know, you were the one who wanted to party the hardest. Yeah. I, I didn't, uh, I guess I had, uh, I could compare it to FOMO. I didn't want to miss out. So, yeah. you know, hard drugs gave me that capacity to, to level out, I guess, and just to keep going. And, um, for a long time it worked, you know, I didn't even realize I was pushing the trauma or the pain down or trying to cope. I didn't even like that wasn't even in my sphere of influence. It was just, that's what I did. Um, but as I crossed that line that I couldn't get back across to, to get healthy again, that's when I realized that's what that was, was that I didn't want to deal with the pain or the sorrow or the suffering or whatever that was for me. Um, and then it just became my normal, you know, I couldn't go out without using, I couldn't go out without getting, loaded right you, um, you could couldn't leave the house with you couldn't leave the house sober no i could i i could like there was I, i'm a binger so i i could go on long stretches of not drinking or drugging um and living a pretty normal healthy life but when that switch clicked there was nothing that was going to stop me from burning my life to the ground and just partying until i couldn't anymore so you'd never come home sober. You'd leave sober, but you'd never come home sober. Right. And yeah. yeah and, and for a long time, I, you know, I lived in hotels. Uh, I'd go to work on a rig, then I'd come home and I'd live in a hotel in downtown Calgary. Like 
in a suite and on the outside, everything looked amazing in my life, but on the inside, man, I was, I was dying, broken. Yeah. We're very dark. You're just depressed. And, and on the outside for you, Amber, were you living a perfect life? I mean, 12 years old, you're, you're in an unstable home. Uh, You find drugs, you find booze, you find bad people to associate with 16 years old. Your mother passes away. Your father isn't a nice person. You're the middle child. You're looking after kids. And you said it got worse. Yeah, it did get worse. I eventually left my dad's house because I got sick of dealing with him because he was was super hard. And, you know, I don't put any fault on my dad today. My dad was going through a shitty, a really shitty place in his own life as well. And we've made amends for our our past too. But, uh, yeah, I was really depressed. They spent a lot of time in a dark place. I'd moved here actually to Medicine Hat when I was 18, just after school. Um, and that was the first time I tried to commit suicide was here in Medicine Hat. So where did you stay after you moved? I stayed with my friend. My okay. friend's mom took me in. Were they good people? We, yes, they were great people. Really great people. Yeah, they really tried to help me. So why did you move? I don't think they were aware of how much drug use I did, but... Why did you move out of where you were to where you are today? Why did you move to Medicine Hat? Um, I thought, well, naturally you don't stay in a shit village of 400 people. and There's not a lot of jobs. So yeah. yeah, we just naturally moved. We came here. Lots of our friends came here. Everybody from Saskatchewan likes to come to Medicine Hat. It's like the biggest, best thing yes. around, right? <laughs> it's the big city. It's the big city. Yeah. Did, did you think that by leaving that you would leave all of your problems behind? Did you, did you see moving here I, as a fresh start? Absolutely. Yeah, and I had some really great people behind me, and but it, it just didn't last. It did not last. I was, I was so suffering and so depressed that, and I had no no treatment. Right, I was just running on my own ship, assuming that I could get my life together. But I had no coping skills to actually figure it out, and I very quickly attracted drug users here too. Were you a mother at, the, at this time? No, I was not. No? No, I was not a mother until after I stopped smoking crack and meth. After you stopped smoking crack well, like, and meth? Well, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, was, I had come out of my addiction by the time I had kids, yeah. So did that part of your life, the crack and meth part, were, you know, when, when you hit your all-time low, that happened here in Medicine Hat? It actually didn't. It happened in Edmonton. So after I had my suicidal episode here... I moved in with my sister in Edmonton and I just repeated the cycle of finding shitty people going out. And then that's where I got introduced to crack from like a, she was a, I worked at a bartender at a bar and she uh, like in a local pub in my area. And yeah, I managed to go back to her house and smoke crack one night. And that was the end of that for a few years. I got, I just went hard. So from medicine hat, you moved to Edmonton to yeah. hopefully escape your problems. Yeah. And of course, again, because we just tend to attract the same people. We can never leave our problems behind. They follow us wherever Not we without go. changing us individually. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If, if we're not putting the work in or understanding what created the problems in the first place, we're still masking the problem. Let's talk about your attempted suicide. Are you, if, are you okay with yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, that happened in Medicine Hat? Yeah. Okay. 
how bad was it? Obviously, was was this the lowest of of the low for you yet? No, I was pretty low then, but I don't. I think my when I was in the crack meth stuff, that was probably the the worst of my mental health. But I was really in a dark place, a severely dark place at how, that time. How were you surviving? Where were you living? How I mean, how were you? I was living with my friend. We got like a two bedroom apartment when we came here. Yeah, and then all my friends came up from Saskatchewan and. They all went out to the bar and I made this plan that I was just going to take all the pills in the house while they were gone and not go out that night. And Was it a last minute decision? Is it something that had been weighing no, on No, I thought about that. I thought about suicide quite a bit. It's funny because I always say the word funny and it's never funny, but I, it's like my choice of words. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I always thought about it a lot, but I never, like especially my teens, but I would never go go to that space because I knew I had a brother and sister that were sitting at home who, who really cared about me. So that was your go-to. That's what, that's what kept hope alive for you for a long time. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. They were just hopeless, hopeless little people who didn't know any different. So they needed somebody. My dad worked 16 hour days. How old were you when? When I tried to commit suicide? Yes. Uh, 18. I would have been just 18. So that's when it, caught up to you for the first time yeah I would have thought about it a lot but I think I had more of an opportunity and I had left I'd left that space of having to be a caregiver 18 you're you're 18 years old and you've already spent a third of your life right dealing with drugs and addiction and depression and and, and death yeah was that was the suicidal ideation like or not even that but just those thoughts of like not wanting to be alive did that happen prior to like the addiction or the loss of your mom? Or was it something that kind of just, I would say that, that those feelings started dealing with my mom's abuse, like drug use. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So quite young, I definitely thought about it. Cause yeah, I was, I was the same boat, like in grade six, I, I didn't know what suicide was, but I knew that I, there was something inside of me that just wasn't right where I, I was wanting to hurt myself. Yeah. You know, and I started seeing like a psychologist in the sixth grade because of this harm ideation that I had, which was actually suicidal ideation, which I didn't even know. So it was well before I had used drugs or alcohol for the first time. Yeah, it's crazy. Mine would have been in the mix of, of using, so not before, okay. but yeah, yeah. I, I was, ha- I was a really happy kid up until my mom's drug use for sure. Yep. Yeah. And that just the whole chaos of the house and would threw me off. Yeah. Let's fast forward to, to Edmonton. Okay. Um, and you say at this point, you still haven't hit the lowest of the low. I guess you don't hit the lowest of the low until you decide that. Change. There's only one of two ways out, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, we're so grateful that you took the way that you did. Yeah. You know, the fact that you're here right now speaking with us. So what was the low point? You know, I woke up one day and I thought, you know, after after years of drug use and years of going into, I would kind of frequent dry out in Edmonton. Um, everybody in there was fucked up. I remember people puking because they're on morphine because their boyfriends were bringing it in. Um, so there was really no support in, in that system either, but I'd, I'd at least gain some kind of tips and tricks of what sobriety, what I needed to do for sobriety, but I didn't really change. And, you know, I, 
I remember waking up one day and I was probably 80 pounds soaking wet. And I just said, if I live another day like this, I will die. And I was like, I don't, I actually don't want to die. And that, that was the deciding factor. That was the deciding factor. That was the life changing moment for you. Yeah. I called my best friend and we'd, we'd talk periodically on and off. If I would stay sober long enough to give her a call, check in, she'd know I was alive. And I just said, I got to get out of here. Can I come? Amber, at this point, did you have good people in your life or were you still surrounding yourself by people that had? No, I'd pushed away everybody. Nobody wanted to deal with me. I was, I was not nice to be around. I was constantly using. I really wouldn't show up for any family function because I was too high to do so. I was very isolated in my own core group and my family wouldn't give me any assistance because if they gave me assistance, they knew what I was going to do with it. And so I really had nobody left. And when you're that far gone, you don't really give a shit either about the people that are close to you. You don't understand the impact you're putting on them, right? And then you, I think any drug addict in in active use thinks that you're the asshole because you're not helping me, right? That's the reality with any drug addict, I think. you go to dry out, and we've heard this so many times, the system failed you. System is shit. Yeah. I I remember leaving dry out one time for someone who was in there who picked me up to get high. I left early. Yeah, it was was not ideal. And at the same time, that I had a choice to stay. I chose not to stay, too. I have to. You have to put in the work too, but yeah, it was, it was not ideal or, you know, I had, I remember coming out of dry out one time and having to sit and wait. I think it was like a week and a half or two weeks to go into a long-term facility. Well, I have nowhere to go. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go hang out with my drug friends. Do you think I ever showed up? No, I was fucked up. (laughs) I I was no longer able to go into the facility because I was, I was high they wouldn't and I was it. no longer clean. Yeah. So and the, I just wouldn't even try. Right. Like, cause you know, it's already failed you. What's the fucking point? Well, yeah. And I had already left to go hang out with all my shitty friends too. I think we burn, uh, we burn those bridges. Like we, yeah. as an addict, I was selfish, self-centered, self-seeking. It was all about Damien and victim, victim, victim. And, and we victimize ourselves. Yeah. And we, Absolutely. you know, fuck this person, fuck that person. And it's easy to stay stuck in that because, uh, you know, we talk about like uh, these bad influences, but it, there weren't bad influences in my life. There was just other people like me that were hurting and suffering that we found each other. Cause I think we were all looking for acceptance. We found acceptance in each other, in right? Group. Like-minded people. Yeah. Relatability. So, yeah. yeah. There, you know, there's some fucking terrible people out there. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I don't begrudge any drug dealer or anybody like they were just, they were doing whatever they were taught and you know, they were surviving just like I was surviving. But you know, when you, you mentioned you had a core group, there was a core group of people in my life that always believed in me, that always loved me, that always saw me greater than I saw myself. Yeah. And when I needed them, they were there, but it wasn't until I was ready to take the action to do something to get well, that they put in that same amount of effort. Right. Because you know, the loved ones in your life, they can only hear you say, I'm sorry so often. Right. And you yeah. can only burn that bridge so many fucking times. And then it's just like, you know what? You got to, hey, this is killing me too. So you got to go do you when you're ready, come back, right? Yeah. So how did you get sober? How did you get clean? Uh, like I was saying there, I just, that morning I called my friend and and said, 
like, I got to get out of here. This isn't a life I want to live. So what did you do? I said, can I come stay with you? And she said, yep. I was like, okay, I'll go get on a bus. And was she a good person? Is she a good person? Yeah, she's a wonderful person. She's still my best friend today. Love her so much. So she wasn't in Edmonton. You're in Edmonton. She was in Saskatoon, actually. She was in Saskatoon. Yeah. That's not a bad little city, is it? No, it's great there. Yeah. 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 Beautiful little city. Yeah. So so that's, that's where the flip happened. To a point. I still found shitty people there. I got there and I was, I did really well there. I think that was definitely a turning point for, for my success. I've never been in a, never ever made it to a long-term treatment facility. I, for a short bit, I found some shitty friends there. Um, and then very quickly after being there, I moved to, uh, I moved to Brooks and that's really where my life changed other than finding some social people here and there that weren't ideal for me. So knowing that the system failed you, knowing that you've been struggling almost all of your life, Damien, this one is, is for you too. If there's any one single influence that helped you the most in, in living a happy life, a clean life, a healthy life, what would that be? Would it be friends? Would it be family? Would it be treatment? Would it be something else? It was my best friend who, who picked up my call. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. She's always been my hype person. She's always seen me for better, like you said, than I ever seen myself. And I think she is all. She always held on to the hope that I would, I would come around, are and, you still al- in, and always was there for me. Are you still in contact with her? Yeah, she's coming to our surf and turf night. Really? Yeah, she is. I love her so much. Yeah. And what about you, Damien? Uh, yeah. And, uh, to be honest, like the uh, the rooms of twelve step are what allowed me to mm-hmm. save my life. Like it had no amount of love from my mother or my father or my brothers or, you know, those close core group of, of friends that I had was going to get me sober. Um, I had to get completely honest with myself and say like, it's either die or do something about this because this can't happen anymore. And it was the, the, people in the 12 step rooms that I, that I frequent that gave me the message that there was a different way to live. Um, now they didn't do anything for me other than show me what I needed to do to get sober. I had to, you know, take that action and continue to take that action to this day to, to get and stay sober. Um, but it was finally accepting who I was, you know, that, Mm -hmm. uh, that thing that I think I was searching for my whole life. Um, that self-love, you know, I, I got the words, love yourself tattooed across my chest. And I got that after I got out of rehab for the first time so that I would, you know, see it in the mirror every day. And it's like, here's this such foreign concept. Like you should just be able to love yourself, but I couldn't even like myself, Yeah, you know? And I hated who I was. Yeah. And, yeah. but I was still a fucking narcissistic asshole who hated who I was that thought I was the most important person in the, in the <laughs> world. Right. And it's, it's this moral mind fuck of what it's like to be an active addict and and alcoholic and what i found in the rooms of 12 step was how i was supposed to live as a human being and that i'm not a good person or sorry a bad person trying to get good i was just a sick person you know uh, i had no i didn't even know what coping skills were i just this is what i did until what i did to feel better didn't work anymore right and that's when i had to i had to take the action to do something. And when I did that and continue to do that, um, I got well. Did you find that your life goals shifted as well when you decided to make the, 
the choice because it is a choice that you you both made a very hard choice yeah it's not an easy one especially like i don't know how long did you get diagnosed with adhd no no you're not adhd oh i am so i'm super impulsive to you i've actually only been on medication for that for the last few years because i was always too scared to take any medication with my addiction i always thought it was oh because because of addiction because of addiction yeah, until my therapist told me that it was, I actually needed it. It was a means to help me cope properly. Yeah. Has that been an issue for you? My ADHD? Your medica- your medication to to help your ADHD. Is that, is that a concern? In terms no. Of, no. No, it was. I was just always too scared. But again, lack of education. No one ever told me. I probably should have been on medication at a very young age. I was super impulsive. To you, I always was like, like I said, the extreme, so extreme you, person. You reach out to your friend, yeah, and she says, "Yes, come live with me." Mm-hmm. What did she do that was different that the system didn't? I think she just uh, she knew me, and I trusted that she knew my life story, she knew my history. She could, she see me through everything, everything. So she just, she believed in me and she gave me the courage to know that I was capable of believing in myself. Is it hard to trust when you're in those states of mind? I think you don't think that people understand you. That's, I think that's it. And I think that's what this group does really well is, our stories are definitely not all similar where we are today is not necessarily all similar, but and how you we got, relate yeah, here. Yeah. yeah. How we got here, where we are today, what we're doing. It's yeah. But everybody is, can understand it. There's some relatability piece. It's pretty cool. So you're living with your friend. Yeah. In Saskatoon. Yeah. Um, how did you stay sober? A lot of willpower to not use. <laughs> that's really what I had to do is tell myself I didn't want to be that person anymore, not hang out with shitty people, change my habits and behaviors, change how, the people I did associate with. How hard was that to, to get rid of, I guess, friends isn't the right term. It's really hard because when you grow up in an environment of people partying all the time, that's pretty normal. And when you're never taught that it's abnormal to be on you know, on a full sending bender on a consistent basis. Like I came out of my addiction very young um, and all my friends were just in the prime of really partying. Everybody was young. So it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work to, to stay off drugs. That's for sure. And so did you have to make the effort to not go to these social functions, not go to the bar? Could you, could you trust yourself at this point? Yeah, like I still went to the bar with my friends. I still drank. I just didn't, I, I avoided all drug use at cost until I would find shitty people and and drink with them or uh, do drugs with them. But no, was it, it was hard. It yeah. just took, it took me a lot of time because like I, I lacked having the 12 step program, I think. So I, I missed that gap. So I spent a lot of time just constantly always paving a way of i always tell people that i took this path like and i'm pointing up right like the path of most resistance is the path (laughs) i took to sobriety right when it comes to my drug addiction so it just yeah i really just failed and said i wouldn't fail again and fail and say i wouldn't fail again until i stopped 
stop making that shitty decision to to do cocaine. Now, did the both of you find that you needed to fill the bad habits with with good habits? Did you need to do something to fill that void to ensure that you know you, you headed down the right path? I, I would again. I'm a binger, so I would go through periods of like extreme healthy living where I'd burned my life to the ground, ruined relationships, felt like shit. And then I'm like, okay, I'm working out. I'm eating healthy. I'm training. I'm doing this, you know, I'm <laughs> looking for another relationship. So I would be healthy. Right. And then you kind of, you know, as a, for me, um, the mental obsession kicks in and all of a sudden I'm doing what I said I wasn't going to do and I'd fall flat on my face again. And, but there was really no repercussions for a long time. Cause I was, was extremely successful in my career with women, with, you know, houses and traveling and whatever. Right. So on the outside, everything looked good, but there was definitely a line where I crossed over and the party wasn't with people anymore. It was just by myself. And then it got very lonely and dark. And that was for a long time. And I, I, I went until I was 36 years old. So you know, I really, the, the repercussions of being me took a long time to get really, really shitty. Um, but I had a, a, a kind of a pattern, live healthy, live yeah. dirty, live healthy, live dirty. Um, until I got sober with 12 step and realized that I have a disease and that it's physical, it's mental and it's spiritual. And when I did that, uh, when I did what I had to do in 12 step, then I could just live, you know, and, and not live like a, uh, a saint's life or, you know, I got to just live life. I can, yeah. I can go and live a normal life where normal human beings like they do go to restaurants. My wife has drinks a glass of wine every once in a while. I can be around people that drink. Um, but I do just live, I live a different life now. I live a more grace filled, serenity filled life. That's not chaotic. Um, I live a life of acceptance. That's awesome. I'm actually going to go to a meeting with Ryan. I've, I've never gone to like an actual meeting here. Yeah. yeah which uh, is cool. Ryan's another founding huge part, uh, member of, of our collective journey. Um, Damien, you, you mentioned disease and, and, and you're right. It is. So Amber, did you see yourself as being, sick did you see yourself as being diseased how did oh, addiction you... is a disease it is and did you it see absolutely it and did you see disease. it did you see it like that not in the it when i was into it I, when i was com- starting to come out of it i said i i told myself you know i don't need to live the same path as my mother chose that was always what i told myself and i know my mom was fighting a terrible disease you know looking back I can make so much sense out of my where my mother was. My mom was mentally in a horrible state. Yeah. She was so depressed. Like, I don't know, too, she was nearing her 40s. She was menopausal. Like, she, and she was in a town of isolation where she could really gain no support. And my dad worked all the time. So, you know, it's it's a disease. It takes over. You get into a dark place. You do bad shit. It's, it is really a a horrible disease people yeah. shouldn't live with. No, I like, I would never have chosen to, no. to be yeah. this, you know what I mean? And, but on the other side of that, I'm very grateful that I have this because the 12 steps have taught me how I'm supposed to live, how a human being is supposed to live. They're not, I think there's a misconception about the 12 steps. Um, 
of either like an NA or an AA or, you know, whatever CA, uh, heroin anonymous, they're not unique to those fellowships. They're universal principles that have been put into a format that somebody like me can mm -hmm. understand. Right. Mm -hmm. And it is, it, it's all about getting connected and getting rid of the selfish self-centered ego part of who I am. And then using my experience to help other people. When I do that, the universe, God, you know, the creator, whatever you want to call it, um, works miracles in, in my life where he gives me and fulfills me with things that I never thought possible. And not because I'm special, but just because I'm me. And that's, uh, that's what 12 step did for me. It gave me a group of people who wanted nothing from me other than to show me what they did to get sober. And then in turn, all they asked me to do is if you get sober and you do what we ask you to do, you help the next person. And then if you help that person and they help another person and they help another person, you're paying it forward. And that's what the universe wants from us. And when we do that, life just happens. And it's so great. It is crazy when you think about it. Cause you're like, wow, you know, I had to go through some really tough, dark stuff, but I do have the capacity to show somebody else that there's a whole other life worth living on the other side. It's pretty amazing. You do get what you want out of the world if you put that energy out there. Yeah. But to realize that, we have to go through some awful, awful, incredibly lows. And, and both of you have lived that. You obviously share, well, we all do. We have some things in common is that, you know, we do have diseases. And we have another thing in common that we've come out on the other side. And something else that I'm realizing is that new two stories are alike. And there's necessarily a right or a wrong way to get clean. I mean, you have to do what, what helps you. And I think that's a big part of why the system fails. They, you know, only have a certain amount of, I don't want to say, it's almost like a rule book going, okay, if you want to get sober, you have to do this, 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 and this, and this. Unfortunately, the real world doesn't, real world doesn't work like that. Um, that said, do you think that's a solid piece of advice for those that are, are are struggling in terms of you don't have to do it this way to get sober. You don't have to do it this way to get sober. You just need to find something that works for you. It's your own journey. Having the steps, I think, is is so helpful, like for you, Damien. Yeah. Um, and for me, I knew I knew enough to know what I needed to stop. I just had to put my own effort and commitment into to getting there. Right. So having some fundamental principles of knowing what you should do, having that maybe some core group of people that still care enough about you, you know, keep that light up. Now, so, so what did you want to do? So you're living the straight life. What were your goals? What were your, your, your goals now? It's not, it's not to get high anymore. No, no, no. That's definitely not my goals. My goals are like staying active, raising wonderful, healthy children. Sorry, let me, so those were your goals when, when you got sober? When my goals, when I got sober was to stay sober and stay live sober. a better, yeah. a better life. Yeah. I've yeah. actually recently, I got into fitness when I, when I moved to Medicine Hat and it's been a dream for my mental health. Um, and just keeping me, keeping me in check. I've, and I've met a lot of really wonderful people in my community because of, you know, running and, and, uh, being part of the gym and convincing all my friends to come to the gym. If any, you know, any of my friends, they'll tell you I'm, 
um, the friend who works them to death at the gym. I love it. I want them to be healthy and active. And, and that's, that's your my go-to. life today. That's, that's, what that's keeps, my addiction today. That's what keeps you healthy. That's yeah. what keeps, keeps you happy. Yeah. Likewise, the gym for me, I mean, with this whole pandemic thing, I, I went through some awful, awful, awful lows, feelings that I hadn't felt in four or five years. And I think it's because that I wasn't doing enough to keep my, my mental positivity positive enough. Damien, what's, what's your go-to? What's, how do you stay positive? Uh, it's connection. I think I take it back to the 12 steps for me. It's, it's that human connection piece and, and supporting and being of service to others. So we as human beings are compensated directly proportional to the service we render others. And nobody taught me that in school. You know, it was all about me. It was, how can I step on your throat to get ahead? How can I push you down to feel better than myself? You know, how can I, you know, not show you that I'm vulnerable because, you know, you'll think I'm weak and if I'm weak, I'm worthless and all this bullshit. And for me, where I get my strength is by being of service, by sitting here and talking about my story and listening to Amber's story and listening to, you know, Amber talk about, I just didn't quit, you know? no matter how many times I fell down, I kept getting up and I kept getting up and I kept getting up because that's inspiring because so many times I just want to quit and I just want to run away. Even today, you know, almost seven years sober, I, there's days when I just want to quit. I don't think I'm worthy enough to be a father to my three sons or I'm not good enough to be that husband to Julie. And I just want to run away. And I'm like, fuck, no, no, this is, this is, this isn't you talking. This is your illness trying to convince you that you're a piece of shit so that you'll go back out and use, or you'll go back to that way of life. Right. So how do I get rid of that voice? Well, I start talking to other people. And when I talk to other people, well, all of a sudden my shitty day goes away and, and I'm being of service. And you need to maintain that attitude, right? You, you need to maintain that mindset because just because we get clean just because we get sober doesn't mean that you know we're not ill it doesn't mean that you know we've been cured from our diseases because that is with us for the rest of our life oh yeah and i think you too if you look back like my mom was a prime prime example of that she had an addiction and she suffered and it crept right back up how many years later just crazy you have to this is a consistent working game right to like you you have to convince yourself and it's not that i don't have shitty days or bad days um and i i hope that i never go there and i in my mindset today i i feel strongly that i will never get back to that to that deep pit i was in um because i got the right people around me um and i got a really wonderful family and kids that inspire me to always be my best too how important is it to have friends and family to me, it's a big piece. It's a big piece. I, I grew up in a big house and I, that's important to me. I love being surrounded by my family. I love being with them. I love, it's great. Yeah. Just brings me joy. And, and this is like a new family to me. I love hanging out with the boys here. Like, <laughs> I yeah, good, good. I do. I, I'm all my friends always say I'm one of the boys and I always fit in. So, and, and they're like a whole new family for me. I'm pretty, I'm well, pretty excited. And I think we, you know, it's, as human beings, um, I, I used to exist. I used to like be on this plane of existence where I thought that's what living was supposed to be. And I never really had an example of what thriving looked like personally. You know, I always thought I was thriving, you know, as long as I had women and drugs and partying and cars and trips and, you know, all that, I was thriving. But what I found is that 
change was happening all around me, but I wasn't growing. I was staying that 14, 15, 16 year old boy who was looking for acceptance, was looking for love. And I was 36 years old and I was still struggling to find those things. And then when I, when I got sober and had that serenity and that grace in my life and started seeing, you know, my worth and and where I was, then I could accept that love that, you know, my core group of friends had, that my family always had for me, that the thing that I was searching for the most. And Mm -hmm. then I was able to start thriving. And what I found in thriving is, again, I take it back to the more I help other people, the more the universe gives to me. And 41 days, 51 days sober, I meet Julie, my now wife, you know, by all intents and measures at 51 days sober, she should have fucking turned and ran, you know, like, but she didn't. And it was because I was open and honest. And, and for the first time, I think I was willing to accept love because I I can give it, I can give love and I want to give, give, but for me to get it's very uncomfortable, even to this day. Like I, I don't like compliments. Mm-hmm. I don't like, you know, I don't feel worthy of those things, but I just have to stop and say, thank you. <laughs> you know? So how, how tough it is for, how hard is it to stay positive about yourself as a person? Cause it's tough at the best of times when life is going good, let alone having been through what you've been through and what you've been through. Do you still fight with it sometimes going, you know what? I'm worth it. I deserve happiness. I deserve love. I have to tell myself that sometimes. Do like, you? I do. Cause I, I still, to this day can go to pretty dark, pretty quick when my default is cut and run and my default. And that's been since grade six until 43 now is that when I get angry or I get frustrated, I don't feel worthy. I don't want to put my shit on other people. And I just want to run, remove myself from whatever's going on. And I do, I have to quickly say, okay, I'm back there. What do I need to do? And then I got to tell myself like, you're, you're worth it. You're, you're amazing. You're all these things. Cause I can tell anybody those things, but for me to, to feel them, it's still, I don't want to say it's a struggle, but it's something that I, if I'm aware of it, then I have to deal with it. And sometimes it, it, it doesn't stay as long. So like where it used to be years where I hated who I was now, it's like hours. And then I can get out of it, but I have people around me that are going to love me unconditionally and see me bigger than I see myself and support me in getting there. Right. Yeah. Is that the same for you, Amber? Do you still have, do you have thoughts like that? No, I think that I, I have some similarities with Demo in regards to a push pull. Like I, I feel really good about who I am in my relationship, but I definitely struggle from a communication standpoint with my husband and I don't think he we really we've had to learn a lot over the last few years um about like my ADHD how I process things and then I've also like when I met my husband I told him very quickly into dating I was like yo man I used to do lots of drugs and I went to rehab just so you're aware um and he was like Huh? <laughs> like, Never hung out with anybody who did drugs his whole life. And he's just like, what? Well, he obviously loves you because he's still here. He's still here. Yeah. And he has to, even though I'm, I'm really happy and I do, I do maintain a really positive mindset on a frequent occurrence. I do feel blessed in the life I have today and where I am today. Um, but I struggle from a communication standpoint. Those are my fallbacks. You know, I'm very much a runner. No one, no one taught me how to effectively communicate. So those are things I really work on today 
to try to help my husband not want to strangle me from time to time. We, too. <laughs> so we, we've talked about the yin in your life, you know, the dark slide. So let's let's talk about the yang. Where are you now? Where's your happiness level? What are you doing? You're not doing drugs. Obvious, no. Obviously. No. Um, yeah, I just, I have a really good job. I have teenagers who are fabulous. Um, I take care of my physical health. I just, I don't know, I'm I'm living like a normal life with normal people. I don't associate with any drug addicts that are not me in the room and demo. <laughs> like I do, I do like with my, these are my new recovery people. It's funny too, because I said like, I don't, you know, I've never really had friends here who lived the same experience as me. They're just, their group never grew up in that manner. Um, they didn't socialize really with people. So you know, it's it's really been a blessing to kind of get to in touch with people who have the same experience as me, and and I can tell my story to them, and you know, I've talked more to about my story now to my friends that I have, and and they think it's pretty cool, and yeah, it's yeah. kind of like a neat thing where you, it's just opened the doors for a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Now, I I don't know if you would have realized this, and I don't know if if you would have realized this either, Damien. But as we talked about some of the the dark parts of your life. As opposed to talking about the highlights right now, I could hear it in your voices. I could hear the smiles. I can see the smiles. I can tell that you're genuinely happy, you know, and, and you said it, you summed something up and I wrote it down, Damien. You said, you know, we used to exist through life and now you're living life. Yeah. You know, so true. Thriving, you know, and. So to sit here and now you have me smiling, you know, listening to your, your story, Amber of, you know, and I know you just gave us a, a small window of, of what you went through, but I'm feeling inspired. You know, I, you're giving me courage because even though, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes the host of, of this podcast, I've yet to share my story and I don't know why. I guess I know why it's, it's, it's out of fear. I think, a, you know, a part of it, you know, and I think that's something that, that we will struggle with for the rest of our days because we do have this, you know, disease. I like that. It's, you know, it just kind of hit me like we, the, the whole name of this podcast is from darkness to life. Right. And yeah, not, we all, every human being on this planet is going to go through something and you know, it doesn't have to be addiction. doesn't have to be alcoholism. doesn't have to be some form of, you know, physical or sexual trauma, whatever it is, but your pain or your experience is your experience. But where we gain power over that experience that might be holding us back is when we become outwardly focused with it and it holds no power on us. And, you know, to hear you ever talk about, you know, your ability now to share this portion of your life with your friend circle here in medicine hat and not uh, be judged or ostracized or looked down upon. That's where the fear comes in. We think that we're, these people are going to, well, holy fuck, they're going to look at me this way and that way. But those are all just stories we're telling ourselves because again, that's our safe space where we've convinced ourselves of whatever this narrative is. And then we're telling ourselves we're afraid to do it. But what, what happens and what the universe wants for us is it, it our lives have happened perfectly <laughs> so that we can be of service to others. And when we just say, okay, I'm going to run towards that fear because fear is the only thing that gets smaller as you run towards it and you become okay with telling your story, you'll realize that you are more accepted than you ever thought possible. And not because 
I guess I'm speaking to myself, not because I'm special, but just because I'm me, you know, I have lots of value. I have great character traits. And when I bring all of that to the table, the world deserves to hear it. Right. And in turn, I just get to be me. I don't have to wear these masks. I don't have to be ashamed of who I am. And then I get to, to do cool things <laughs> and thrive. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, from darkness to life. I, I know, know how to live. You know, I have bad days. I'm human, you know, but what I do have today is just this profound need or want to just give because when I give, man, the rewards are so great. Um, yeah, you, I'm inspired today. I've been inspired all week since I met you, um, a couple of days ago, I've been inspired to like really get back on the horse and and make a difference in our community and in our world, right? How awesome is this? So you guys just met a few days ago. Yeah. And we haven't seen each other, I guess, in eight years since we spoke for 30 <laughs> yeah, seconds. Yeah, since I- you so kindly <laughs> <laughs> got my card stuck. Yeah. Thank you. I was a single mom. Oh, I was really right. stressed out. <laughs> you are very welcome. But I mean, out of this conversation, there has been a lot of honesty here. And I think because of that, I, I mean... I, Look how close we've become just in the last 60 minutes, you know, and I think it's because we're having these honest conversations. Yeah. And I think that's something that we can all learn from. I think things, something that we can all carry forward to help us battle whatever demons it is that we have. You need to talk to someone, someone, you have to be a hundred percent honest with, with somebody in your life. At least that's, that's how I see it. That's what I'm, I'm learning from this. I think yeah. it starts with being a hundred percent honest with yourself. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so when you're a hundred percent honest with when I'm a hundred percent honest with myself, then I realize, okay, this is how I'm showing up. Is it working? Okay. Yes or no. And if it's not, I got to do something. Right. Yeah. And then when I'm listening to you just a second ago, Poncho, it's like, why does it take me having to come sit in a room on a microphone to have these conversations? Why don't I, you know, what stops me when I'm at save on just having that brief interaction with the person at the meat counter, you know, of really, you know, we talk about this all the time, but, yeah. um, what's, what's stopping us as human beings from making this more personal, making this connection more frequent. And then my mind goes to, what am I modeling for my kids? You yeah. know, so that I want them to see that I want them to grow up differently than I grew up so that they are connected, you know, and don't get disconnected from, you know, the super consciousness of this planet, which is all of us together, helping each other, guiding each other, supporting each other. Yeah. I'm, I, I preach to my kids all the time. My one younger, she's a little more timid and my, my oldest is like verbal diarrhea, but I, I tell them all the time, like having to communicate sucks and saying the hard things aren't ideal sometimes, but that's how, how we fix problems. And I don't, I don't ever want them to feel like they can't tell me anything. Like you got to, you got to tell me everything. And sometimes I don't want to hear it, <laughs> but, but I, you, I'll hear it. <laughs> you need to. I, I you mean, have to. Yeah. You know, I almost lost my life. I did lose my marriage and many other things because I wasn't honest with myself and I refused to have those hard conversations thinking, well, if I don't talk about it, even though it makes me feel uncomfortable, if I just pretend it's not there, everything will go away. And fuck, as we all know, that's not the case at all, is it? You know, so I mean, to sit here with you amazing people and to have 
real questions asked and to have real conversation. This is something that I've started doing. You talked about going to the meet and count. We, we meet these people in our lives all the time. Do you ever think about it, though, when somebody says, hey, how are you? What's your first automatic response? Fine. Fine. Good. Good. Yeah, great. <laughs> right. You're not really listening, are you? You know, or they're not listening to you. I've started actually telling people how I really feel, regardless if I know them or not. And, and the real conversation that comes out of those honest answers, next thing you know, you're having, you know, you're trying to solve all of the world's problems with, with strangers. And it's such an empowering feeling. And it, it does bring a sense of understanding going, Jesus, you know what? I'm not alone, right? People do get it. So when somebody asks me how I am, I don't say good. If I'm pissed off, I'm like, you know what? I'm having a shitty day. I don't care who it is. I mean, I, I will answer honestly. And so many fun conversations have come out of that. Well, it's, it's, it's so true. How that hundred percent honesty with ourselves, like we're just lying to ourselves yeah. and we're, you know, same with addiction, you know, everything's good. Everything's good on the outside. Don't look behind the curtain. Wizard of Oz. Yeah. yeah. Lying to myself, okay. lying to myself. I am a master manipulator of my own existence. If I stay in that shit and keep lying, as soon as I'm honest, I'm like, okay, well I have to open that curtain and I got to do something about this. And I wish somebody told me that earlier. I wish like, I am my own problem. I am my own solution. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it. Uh, I am the only common denominator in every situation of my life. Not good, not bad, not right, nor wrong. Just is. I wasn't responsible. It was always somebody else's fault. If only this, if only that, if only this, only that. When I became responsible and said, fuck enough is enough. I have to do something. That's the freedom. Responsibility sucks, but it's also very freeing for me because I know that if it's up, if it's to be, it's up to me. Yeah. I, and I've noticed a common denominator with your story and with your story. Another common denominator is that, well, number one, you need to be honest with yourself. Number two, you have to stop yourself. You got to stop looking at yourself as a victim. You want to get healthy at the end of the day, it's up to you, isn't it? Yeah, it's a personal choice. You know, because we always have that choice. Um, last thoughts, final words on anything or everything on your mind, something that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? No, I just wanted to say it was funny when we talk about honesty. I, I met with a client um, yesterday and I'm a banker, if you guys don't know. But uh, he's like, oh, you're, you said you were at a podcast as I rescheduled with him yesterday morning for yesterday afternoon. He's like, what was that about? And I said, well, I was a drug addict once. <laughs> and, he's See, good, good for you. and he's like, huh? <laughs> I was like, yeah. So I was talking about my drug use. And he's like, cool. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah. What's the, sh I got, that's what I was doing today. Yeah. So yeah, and he, I ended up telling him my whole story and it was a pretty cool experience. All because when he asked you how you were or why you needed to read, and you were honest with him, you yeah. told him why. And he still wants me to lend him money. Well, so. hey. <laughs> good I, like, I used to be good. a banker too, but that's a different story for, <laughs> for a different time. And I guess, you know, just expanding upon that, you know, making that choice to get healthy, it's a scary thing to want to, to change. Right. Because for me, I think I was in that pattern for so long that it became just comfortable and safe, even though it was killing me. And I think the beauty of our collective journey is when you make that choice, 
we'll be there to support you in getting you to where you need to be. We'll help you 24 hours a day so that you don't have to navigate some of these things alone for the first time. Right. Um, that's the attraction of shared experience to me. You yeah. know, I don't get anything from helping another human being except for I get to stay sober another day. And to me, that's the biggest gift because sobriety for me is the most important thing in my life. It's above my kids. It's above my wife. It's above everything because if I'm not sober, everything's going to everything shit. Everything goes apart. away. Right. Yeah. And it was like, I walked in and out of 12 step for a long time and it, it was scary. It took courage, but I didn't quit. You know, like Amber, she just kept falling down and getting back up and falling down and getting back up. But when I got it, you know, this responsibility of being me and being sober and being me, that's the, the gift of life where I get to help other people that are suffering so that they can have the, when they have that courage and that window of opportunity opens up, we're going to be there for you and we're going to support you in you taking the action that you need to do. I'm not going to help. I'm not going to do it for you because that would be robbing you of that experience, but I'll be there for you and I'll hold your hand to get you through the door so that you can do the work that you need to do because that's the way we're supposed to live as human beings. We're not supposed to step on each other's throats. We're supposed to support each other. We're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to give each other a hand up. You know, the old cliche, united we stand, right? We are stronger as a whole than we are as an individual. Um, Damien, thank you so much as always. Amber, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being so honest. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, and, and you are giving strength, both of you, to what our collective journey is all about, at least in part in the fact that you are not alone. There are people who understand. And there are people who want to see you get better. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Otto. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> thanks, Damo. <laughs> From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.